Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We were this morning to take you out into a field and say, there's a tree. We want you to walk toward it after we blindfold you. And we say, go and walk toward the tree. Surely enough, what, what you would do is you would start toward the tree, but you would just kind of mute, move slightly askew from that trajectory. And if we stopped you after 100 steps or so, we would pull off the blindfold and you would see how far and how distant you were from that goal that you had, right? This morning, as we look at the life of Jonah, Jonah thinks he's on the right trajectory. He thinks that he's going in the right direction. Uh, But what's going to happen this morning in our text is God's going to remove the blindfold from Jonah for a second. And he's going to say, hey, Jonah, you're not as close to what I'm thinking as you think you are. Remember when I was a kid, I, uh, I used to just want to mow the lawn so badly until I started having to do it, right? You ever experienced that? I would watch my dad ride this tractor, thought that looks fun and cool. And then I started doing it saying, this is not fun and not cool, right? But what would happen is I would get bored and I would decide I'm going to mow this in a completely straight line with my eyes closed. So there I was mowing the lawn with my eyes closed, right? And sure enough, I would be askew. I would be off when I woke up and opened my eyes and my lawn mowing looked like I was a drunk 10-year-old, right? This is the story this morning. The trajectory that Jonah has will be revealed to be different than what he thought it was. See, Isaiah and Peter use this analogy. They, they speak to us. They say, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all kind of veered off course. And it's human for us to turn aside from what God would have for us. It's human for us to kind of err. The Bible refers to this as sin. It's, it's kind of missing the mark. It's kind of being off of God's trajectory. And the question for us this morning is this. How do we get back on the right path? How do we find our way back to the the way of God? When we take off the blindfold, how do we kind of get back on path? When we open our eyes on the lawnmower, seeing the we've laid waste behind us, how do we get back to the right place? So here's our big idea this morning. God sometimes uses His providence to realign our hearts with his. Providence is one of those big spiritual words, isn't it? It's that idea that God is sovereign over things, but this is sovereignty with a direction. It has some kind of influence that God is actually putting the circumstances into our life for his purpose. So God is using his providence, the day in, day out realities of our life so that he can redirect us. We'll see that in the story of Jonah this morning. We're going to see this in two different parts. In verses 1 through 4 of Jonah chapter 4, which, by the way, if you're using your pew Bibles here this morning, we're on page 775 in the Old Testament. But we'll see this in verses 1 through 4, that God's grace leads to Jonah's despair. And that just kind of highlights how out of sync Jonah's heart is with the heart of God. And we're going to kind of just be introduced to it there. But in the remainder of the chapter, verses 5 through 11, God is going to confront Jonah's anger and kind of reveal the the skew nature of Jonah's heart. 
So we want to dive in. I'm going to invite you to read with me in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, as we see this first point, that God's grace leads to Jonah's despair. Look at verse 1 with me. It displeased, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said to you when I was in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? See, Jonah's true feelings kind of come to the surface here, right? And Jonah's complaint is that God is too gracious. It starts off and it tells us in verse 1 that Jonah was exceedingly displeased and he became angry. You notice that these emotions are kind of rising to the surface in Jonah because of the circumstances of what we've seen in the book of Jonah. So far in the book of Jonah, God called to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And Jonah, instead of getting up and going to Nineveh as he was supposed to do, went the opposite direction. He went to Tarshish. He disobeyed God. In chapter 2, it, it kind of culminates so that Jonah is sinking into the bottom of the sea. He's calling out to God to save him. And sure enough, God saves him through a nasty fish. And that fish, literally, the text says, vomits him out on the shore so that Jonah goes to Nineveh smelling like fish vomit, right? Not exactly the health and prosperity that we like to think of, right? And so there's Jonah, and now he's raising this complaint again. And look at what he says in verse 2. It's not this what I said when I was in my own country? In essence, he's saying, this is why I fled your presence. Uh, Jonah is coming back to his original complaint, and he voices it again there in verse 2. He says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, we might not know this, but the majority of this statement here in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, is actually a quotation from Exodus chapter 34. When Moses asks to see God's glory, God hides him in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by, and as he passes by, he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jonah is quoting that here in Jonah chapter 4 as a complaint against God. This statement is what God says of himself, and Jonah is using that as a complaint against God. See, Jonah isn't saying anything that God wouldn't say about himself. So why is Jonah so frustrated? God hasn't changed. God's doing the exact same thing he has always done. Why is Jonah so angry? See, it would seem that Jonah wanted justice for Nineveh, while God wanted grace for Nineveh. Jonah's frustration is that God is as gracious to Nineveh as he has been to Jonah. And it highlights a discrepancy between the heart of his prophet and the God that he represents. 
So what we see in response to that, look at how deeply, exactly, right? Look at how deeply this affects Jonah. He despairs of life itself. And in light of God's grace, Jonah wants to die. Jonah asks God to take his life. It is better for me to die than to live. In fact, Jonah's going to say the exact same thing in verse 8 later in our chapter here today. Jonah preferred death to life. Now, this is fundamentally an irrational statement, is it not? It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah has no idea what exists on the other side of death. And yet he's making this statement that it's better for him to die than to live. It's a statement filled with emotion rather than rationality. We might forget, too, this morning that Jonah is a recipient of the very grace he's disparaging. It's what makes Jonah's complaint so off-putting. Jonah sounds like a spoiled child that throws himself down on the Walmart floor. You've only seen that with other people's children, right? Yeah. Jonah sounds like this child that, that is just drawing attention to himself in the midst of true suffering, in the midst of the potential of true suffering, I should say. But notice how God interacts with Jonah in verse 4. God interacts with a gracious, direct question. Look at verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? God's turning to Jonah and saying, does your anger make anything better? Are you doing well to be angry? Does it change anything? This gentle question from God probes the depths of Jonah's heart. Jonah, God asks, is your anger good? We take note that this question's rhetorical, right? It's not meant to be answered. Jonah doesn't supply an answer of any kind. And the implication is that Jonah's anger at God's gracious nature would, of course, not be good at all. And these six words represent a loving interjection by God himself. So just, God is like that surgeon, right? When you go to a surgeon, you don't want him to just make willy-nilly cuts, right? You don't want a cut-happy surgeon, do you? You want a surgeon that makes as small and minimal amount of cuts as he possibly has to. And here God is interacting with Jonah, using six words to get to the heart of the matter, making the smallest possible incision in Jonah's surgery. See, what this brings to light in verses 1 through 4 is that God's grace is a scandalous grace. Sometimes it seems out of sync for us. See, Jonah thought God's grace should have limits. Jonah thought that, that God should be gracious to him and just to the Assyrians. Now, to be fair, before we throw Jonah under the bus too much, the Assyrians were pretty nasty people. In fact, I was reading about this, and I came across this king, and I'm going to try to pronounce his name just for the sake of my own humility this morning, right? Asher Nazarpal, right? We'll call him Big Al, right? Big Al II, he said this. What he would do, he would make these tablets, and he would kind of disperse them amongst the nations, and these tablets were meant to be all of the heinous things that he had done to foreign countries, and so he writes this. Imagine just writing this on a, a tablet stone and sending it somewhere else. I flayed many through my land and draped their skins over my walls. Awesome. 
I burned their adolescent boys and girls. A pillar of heads I erected in front of the city. Just imagine putting this on your Facebook page, right? This man was a nasty individual, and these people were a nasty people. And in Jonah's mind, the Assyrians should have the last access to God's abundant grace. They were notoriously violent. And here's the kind of rub on this whole story. In about 30 years after Jonah would die or stop being a prophet, the nation of Assyria would come into the northern kingdom of Israel and take away 10 of the tribes so that they are untraceable to this day. The Assyrians would be responsible for the destruction of Israel, these 10 tribes. But God's grace doesn't have limits, does it? That is to say that God's grace can reach anyone, anywhere. (laughs) Just think about this for a second. If that were not true, it couldn't be called grace. Grace, by definition, is this idea of unmerited favor, that I don't deserve the thing that I am getting. It, It means that grace doesn't take into consideration what you deserve, Grace cannot be gracious if it only comes to the deserving. And so Jonah's missing what grace really is. Remember, Jesus was criticized. He was criticized because he ate with who? With tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Peter, or in the book of Luke, excuse me, Jesus says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Paul tells us that uh, grace comes, or salvation comes through by faith, uh, by grace through faith, right? And that faith is not ourselves. It's, it's not deserved in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it's actually kind of dangerous when Christians start to say that grace can be deserved, that it can be earned. It's dangerous when religious people start setting parameters for God's grace. By way of illustration, I was reminded this week of a church. You've probably heard of it this morning, and I don't typically like to call out individual churches or what they do, but you've likely heard of this organization before. But there's a group called Westboro Baptist. This is taken from their website as of this morning. Their website URL is godhatesfags.com. Fred Phelps, the pastor, has said this. And this was written after 9-11. We told you right after it happened five years ago that the deadly events of 9-11 were direct outpourings of divine retribution, the immediate visitation of God's wrath and vengeance and punishment for America's horrendous sodomite sins. That worse and more of it was on the way. We further told you that any politician, any political official, any preacher telling you differently as to the cause and interpretations of 9-11 is a dastardly, lying, false prophet, cowardly and mean and headed for hell and taking you with him. God is no longer with America, but is now America's enemy. God himself is now America's terrorist. It's worth noting, just in response to that, that this is Peter's words. That God is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's hard to imagine a posture that could be less patient than that displayed by Westboro Baptist. 
Further, it's hard to imagine a more self-righteous posture than declaring God's judgment on the sins that I have declared in my heart to be worse than others, than worse than my own. See, here's the truth this morning. If our theology doesn't have room for the forgiveness of great sinners, we probably haven't adequately understand our offenses before a righteous and holy God. If we're willing to throw stones at someone else because of their great sin, perhaps we need to check the plank in our own eye, as Jesus has said. See, the truth is that God meets great sinners with abundant grace. It's the nature of God to overflow with liberality of mercy and goodness, such that when the time was perfect, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. Jesus Christ, in an expression of God's abundant mercy, bore the sin of all those who would place faith in him. Great sinners, small sinners, rich, poor, black, white, whoever else it might be, God is inviting all sinners to come to him to receive mercy, right? That's his statement in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. What's the qualification for those who would come? All who are weary. Are you weary? Are you tired of trying to earn your righteousness by doing a a litany of good things? Jesus beckons you to come and find grace and forgiveness. Perhaps you're here and you've been a Christian your, your whole life long. You're familiar with this grace. We cannot then throw stones at other people that sin more than we do. Instead, what we should find is a healthy pattern of invitation to repentance. See, Jonah's heart is out of line with the God he represents. And what we see is is God really starts to address this in verses 5 through 11. So look at verse 5 through 11 with me. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it may be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah's joy at God's good providence happens as this plant kind of rises up, right? And you've never seen a plant grow in a day, just come to my yard. It seems like it happens all the time, right? And so this plant pops up. Jonah finds himself alone outside the city, ready for the fireworks show of God's destruction. And God kind of brings this shade over top of him so that Jonah might not be kind of open to all of the heat. It's funny sometimes how our hearts cling to the smallest bit of good favor, right? We cling to the smallest, most inconsequential things. So something so simple as a plant gives inordinate joy for us. I remember a few years back when I was a lot less mature than I am right now. I hope you hear the sarcasm in that statement. There was a a Sunday 
And I got done. I was leading music that Sunday, and uh, I was looking forward to a football game, Sunday night football. I was going to sit down. I was going to have my, my snacks and my drinks, and I was going to watch Peyton Manning play football, right? And sure enough, like that week or that night, like TV wasn't working. The antenna didn't get reception, could not watch the game. And I just pouted for the whole night. I just had this horrible attitude about it, right? There I was pouting over something so stupid and inconsequential. This is what Jonah's doing. In the absence of true joy, Jonah sets his his joy on these incidental things. A plant, just like I set my joy on a sports team or whatever else it was. And this is exactly what happens, is that when those things are stripped away, you better watch out. See, Jonah has this plant stripped away from him. And so Jonah despairs at God's hard providence in verses 7 through 8. See, what happens is the next morning, if you think it's miraculous that a plant big enough to cover a man popped up in one day, he sends a worm that eats an entire plant in a day, right? Just imagine this worm after everything's done, just like laying out belly huge, right? You think you have it tough. Look at me, right? This worm consumes this entirety of this plant, and Jonah is despairing. In verse 8, he says, he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die die than to live. Jonah's despairing because this plant has now been consumed. There's an author by the name of David Foster Wallace. And if you ever get a chance, he writes an essay on what it is to take a cruise. This is not a person who claims faith in Christ or anything. In fact, he's since passed. In fact, this uh, picture, he's trying to look like Axl Rose, I think, for Halloween. Um, But he says this. He says, the word despair is overused and banalized now. It's a serious word, and I'm using it seriously. It's close to what people call dread or angst, but it's, it's not these things quite. It's more like wanting to die in order to escape the unbearable sadness of knowing I'm small and weak and selfish and going without a doubt to die. It's wanting to jump overboard. See, Foster Wallace is describing this incident that happened on these cruise ships. He's describing that every time a, a little bit of rust pops up on this cruise ship, someone with a bucket of paint comes over and paints over it. That you'll never see this cruise ship out of order. You'll never see it kind of breaking down. What happened is this young man, 14 years old, took his life. He jumped from the upper balcony Foster Wallace is picking up on this, saying, we can't cover up our own weakness. We can't paint over our hardships. And Jonah's feeling that. For Jonah, the thought of this world where, where God is so annoyingly gracious is overbearing. He can't stand to live in this world where God is just going to give grace willy-nilly to whoever whom he chooses. He would rather die than watch Nineveh continue to exist. Here's what's really crazy about this. If we look back through our passage, we see this phrase that's repeated, that God appointed this. And so in verse 6, we see that God appointed the plant. And then in verse 7, God appointed the worm to destroy the plant. And then finally, to add insult to injury, God himself appointed the east wind to kind of melt Jonah's melon. There he is just sitting in the desert, and his bald head is just scorching underneath this desert sun, right? See, the author of our short little book seems to have us leave us no way out that God is doing this. We might get a little bit squeamish about the things God's responsible, right? 
I remember reading to my kids when they were young, and we would talk about God created everything. And we would say, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the stars and the moon and the sun and all of these different things. And we would walk through the creation and we would get done and we would close the book and in the self-satisfaction, I'd be like, you have any questions? And they say, yeah, did God make your car? Because that's a piece of garbage. They didn't say that. But the question loomed, right? Did God make everything? We like to play games of causality, attributing things to God and other things to Satan and still yet other things to us. But notice here in Jonah chapter 4, our author chooses to attribute all of these things, not to weather patterns or not to uh, just the, the you know, National Geographic nature channel that happens here. He attributes them to a sovereign God. It's as though God is moving Jonah to the edge of madness on purpose. He uses all of these bits of his providence to move Jonah along to a greater lesson. That's a big word, providence. And we've talked about it a little bit already this morning. Let's get some definition. Heidelberg Catechism says this, that the Almighty, everywhere present, power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that Herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Listen to this. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Or the Belgic Confession. We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangements. John Piper wrote a 700-page book. Wow, I'm struggling today. 700 page book on providence, and in it he describes the difference between sovereignty and providence. Providence is God's sovereignty with direction. It's this idea that God controls every aspect of my life, and there's nothing that's come into my life that God didn't see and is not using right now for his greater glory. See, as such, God's appointments for Jonah start to take shape. His purpose for Jonah's life, his direction for what he wants Jonah to see is starting to take shape here in Jonah chapter 4. This whole narrative of, of Jonah running away, being swallowed by a fish, being vomited up on the shore, preaching to Nineveh, watching Nineveh repent, taken outside the city, pouting for a day and a half, is all used by God to give Jonah a central lesson get that lesson in verses 9 through 11. Look at verse 9. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Notice the similarity to his previous question. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry about the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be, ang- to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Again, God starts with questions. Do you do well to be angry? Notice Jonah's response is like a toddler that crosses his arms. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, if you're toddler tells you he's angry enough to die. That's a different story, right? This is bold. Jonah is looking at the God of the universe and saying, you're wrong. You're wrong to do this. I'm angry enough to die. I'm justified in my anger. He's so sure that God is wrong, that he is in the right. He's so self-righteous in this moment. Notice that God continues to press. God doesn't throw up his hands and walk away and say, whatever, Jonah, you made your bed. Now go lie in it. God continues to press. He gives this explanation in verses 10 through 11. See, God gives an analogy to Jonah. That Jonah is to the plant as God is to the city of Nineveh. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? If if Jonah was allowed to be upset about the plant, then God should not be required to destroy the city of Nineveh. Jonah's pity for a plant is out of sync with God's pity for Nineveh. And in short, God is saying, you love plants and shelters, and it shows us what your will is, what your desire is, and it's out of sync with what my desire is. Notice God's reasoning says there's 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. Now, just so you know, that's not a population statement. This isn't the kind of a census of the city of Nineveh. What God is saying is he's saying there are 120,000 people that are so simple-minded that they cannot differentiate between their right hand and their left hand. There are are people there that cannot make moral decisions on their own behalf. And and God is trying to have grace upon them that if he were to destroy this entire city, he would do wrong in destroying 120,000 innocent people. And also cattle. I thought that's funny that he adds on the cattle, right? Apparently God likes a steak, right? Now here's one thing that's notable. We we close this out, and it feels kind of dissatisfying, right? God gives this word to Jonah, and we never hear another word. But we know that Jonah turned. You say, how do you know that? Well, we have the book of Jonah, right? Somebody had to tell this story. Jonah had to go back and tell someone about God's interactions with him, about how God was right to to give grace to the city of Nineveh. Jonah had to go back and tell the story where he was the only one inside the whale. He had to go back and tell that the word of the Lord came to him and he disobeyed. And so Jonah is showing us that he repented by the fact that we're even reading this in 2022. We have this recorded because Jonah sees God's word and he responds in faith and he wants to tell this story so that we also might learn of a God who corrects his people. 
You grab onto that this morning that God corrects us through the circumstances that we see in our life. He wants to produce this rich faith in Jesus that can help us navigate all of the trials and difficulties that we face. That's what God's doing. Jonah just doesn't walk away and say, yeah, forget you, God. This story would never be told. See, the truth this morning is that God will confront our false notions of his character. God will so work in us. If we are those who claim faith in Jesus Christ, we have this this truth in, in Philippians chapter one, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Christian, this morning, if you are in Christ and you've made a claim of faith in Jesus, guess what? God will refine you and refine you and refine you until he finally brings you into his presence for all eternity. You say, that's great. How does this have any bearing on my life on a Monday at three o'clock? What do we take away from this passage other than God's gracious? I want to draw out two things. The first is kind of a, a parenthetical observation. And the second can be a little bit more substantive. The first thing we notice as kind of a parenthetical observation is that our misaligned heart with God creates a bevy of emotional problems. You see that in this passage? How many times does Jonah say, I despaired of life? Going back to chapter one, he said, throw me into the sea. There's this bevy of emotional difficulties that come from Jonah's uh, kind of dissonance with the heart of his father. Notice that, that Jonah's problems of the soul extend from a fundamental division with his God. It's as if the, the further that Jonah gets from sharing God's heart for the nations, the more he plunges into despair. Now, let's be clear. Not all emotional difficulties are caused by our sinfulness. There are biological things. There are lots of causes if we experience depression or, or whatever else it might be. But one cause might be our own sinfulness and our kind of askewness, for lack of a better word, with the heart of God. Genesis 4, uh, Cain and Abel, we know this story, right? It's God that graciously interacts with Cain, and he says, why is your face downcast? If you do right, will not your countenance be lifted up? Cain, why are you depressed? If you do what's right, won't your countenance change? Psalm 32 says it this way. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. And he describes that it's like God's hand was upon him. Psalm 42 describes it, right? Why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God? The scriptures are constantly showing us that there's emotional consequences for our sinful disposition. And sometimes we might do better to go to our knees in prayer than going to our therapist. Sometimes. If you go to your therapist or your counselor, you should also go to your knees in prayer. Don't hear me say otherwise, right? Maybe some of our mental illnesses extend from life patterns at odd with God's way. 
Now, that being said, let's push on to this second observation, this more fundamental observation. We should be people who ask this question. What good news is motivating me? What good news is there that's motivating me? What we have here in Jonah is a life that is holding to one expression of good news and a God who gives another expression of good news. Tim Chester has this great book entitled Everyday Gospel. And he, he summarizes the gospel in these three or four different phases, right? And you've probably heard these before. There's creation. that God created man for his purpose. And then there's the fall. What happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, that man rebelled against God in sin. But there was redemption, that God brought restoration to man by Jesus' death. And then finally, there will be consummation someday in the future where God will someday dwell with man again in heaven. This is kind of a statement of our hope as Christians that we go through this path where we see creation, God's purpose for man. Man rebels against God's purpose. God redeems us through Jesus Christ. And someday, in God's consummation of all time and eternity, he will bring us into his presence. But what happens is that sometimes we create other gospels. And Chester goes through this uh, gospel presentation that he calls the Slimmer's Gospel. He's British, so you can forgive him for that. But Uh, That's a word for dieting, the dieter's gospel, right? The slimmer's gospel goes like this. I'm meant to be happy and valued, and the fall happens because I'm not physically attractive enough because I'm overweight. And so redemption means I can change through willpower, weight loss, and exercise, and the consummation is that I hope that someday my body will be transformed because then I'll be appreciated. You can see there's kind of this false gospel narrative that happens here. We could insert all kinds of different things into this false gospel that happens. Well, this morning, when we look at the life of Jonah, we see this false gospel come about. That Jonah is thinking that God has created Israel as his chosen people, which is true enough. But the fall happens in that other nations are problems for Israel's primacy in God's world. And God will bring the world back to or restoring Israel and judging nations like Assyria. And finally, his hope is that God will rule the world through his chosen people, Israel. You can see that when God contradicts this false gospel in Jonah's life, Jonah despairs of everything. Jonah says, this life is not worth living. See, this morning we have to ask this question, what false gospels are we ourselves holding to? What are we hoping in? Where has your heart strayed from the good, gracious heart of God? You know, there's warning signs for this, right? The warning signs exist that our emotions expose to us sometimes that something's out of sync. Or sometimes our our time and commitments expose to us that our lives are out of sync. Or sometimes our expenses show us that our lives are out of sync. I'm not a car guy. You should know this by now, right? But if you drive around and you see that dash light, the check engine light come on your dashboard, and you just ignore it, that's probably not a good thing. At least I don't think it's a good thing. Let's just imagine for a second that instead of going and getting your car checked out, what you chose to do instead was to take a hammer and just punch that light out of your dashboard. Well, obviously, you would be prone to all kinds of damage to your car. See, all of these things, they they show up on the dashboard of our life. They try to highlight that something's inconsistent between the heart of God and between how we're living. 
And it's highlighting for us that something's wrong. We have to amend ourselves and come back and repent to return back to the heart of God and share his heart for us. This morning, if you need help navigating some of those circumstances, I would invite you to reach out to me or to Ryan as one of our elders. Brian's on vacation. Uh, you can reach out to him too. You might want to wait a couple of weeks though. There are people here that can help you navigate these questions. See, the truth this morning is that there is no substitute for a scandalously gracious God. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's what he says in 1 Peter. And sometimes he uses these worldly difficulties to put us back on track and recalibrate our heart to his. Fundamentally, this happens as we turn to Jesus in faith, as we turn from our sinfulness and to God in his grace. This morning, I want to pray that God makes us people that turn to him rather than away from him. That like Jonah, when the word of the Lord comes to us, we don't run away. We stay and obey. I didn't mean to make that rhyme, I promise. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would bless your words this morning. We ask now that you would Bring us back in line with the heart that you have for your world. Lord, you have a scandalous grace for your people. You have a grace that exceeds our expectation. So Lord, we pray that you would allow us to know your grace, to trust you, to know that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was enough to forgive our sins. pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be a people who turn to you rather than trying to turn to our own false gospels. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.